Hello, welcome to Full Circle with Garland. I'm a leader in the DEI space and have spent 20 years of my career in human resources. I've been having meaningful conversations about career development with my friends and colleagues, many of whom are rarely heard on stages and podcasts. I am excited to bring you their stories each week. I will be sharing how their diverse backgrounds have shaped their work, the lessons in their career highs and lows, and the importance of recognizing the full circle moments in life. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoyed this week's interview. Welcome to Full Circle with Garland. Today's special guest is Tovi Scruggs-Hussein. This guest is excitingly uh, fun for me because we've known each other for a very long time, um, and I've seen her work in a variety of ways over the years. And so to see what she's doing now, I think is just perfect, not only for who she is, but I think who she's always been. Uh, She's got a long history, I think, starting in the education field. Uh, She started out as a teacher, moved into a role of a principal, um, started doing more in the um, administration space, Uh, And then, of course, moving into consulting as it relates to education and um, equity and inclusion issues within education. Um, And now she is involved in um, a consulting business that allows her to take all of these experiences and kind of leverage it. uh, I think in our new world, especially right now, Um, I'm excited to have her on today because I think so much of this work is spiritual work. So much of this work is emotional um, and social work. And I don't know that um, we get enough people who uh, do this work in that way. And so what I'm excited about having Tovi on today is to talk more about how she brings that element to her work. So thank you so much, Toby. Thank you, Garland. I am just thrilled to be here with you as like a fully adulting woman. It's so lovely. We go back so far. And so um, I'm just so proud of all that you're doing and how you're bringing your voice into the world in this way. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to jump right in because I know that so many times when I speak with guests, they talk about when they started to feel othered or different was in school. And so can you share what um, that experience has been like for you in terms of your own upbringing and your own transition into school? Absolutely. Um, My parents really valued education and really believed in the power of education, particularly my mother. Um, My parents divorced when I was two, so I was very much accustomed to seeing my father every other weekend. And so my mother was really the one who was leading the way with my education. Um, She was that parent that was going to visit the schools to make sure they were the right school for me. She was the parent that was going to lie about our address so that I could be in uh, the better school if we could not afford to live in that area. Um, I didn't necessarily come from um, a privileged family by any means at all and very much a working class family. So we rode the bus. We sometimes lived in areas where the schools weren't that great. And um, my experiences in schools, unfortunately, I think early on, were, were really white schools and white institutions where I did feel um, kind of like that mascot at times, or this is Toby, um, the acceptable one, because she's the only one. And I remember there was a time when I was in third grade and I came home so excited and I told my mom, mommy, mommy, this fifth grader said that she doesn't like black people, but she likes me. Uh, wow, was right. And um, my mom had to sit me down. And that was like our first kind of race-based school conversation where she had to share with me that that was not a compliment. And um, and then things just really, um, I started seeing things a little bit differently and just experiencing uh, microaggressions. Like I didn't even realize I didn't have a word for it back then. And um, we ended up moving. So I went to school in Orange County And that garland was huge for me. I was literally the only black person, not just black child, but black person in an entire elementary school, K through six. And then I went on to middle school 
in Irvine as well. But what it showed me, Garland, was the disparity of what kids of color were getting in schools at that time versus what white public schools were getting at that time. And I knew when I left the white environment after my mother's death in ninth grade, I went to Inglewood High School after that, which is considered very urban, very different than Orange County. And what I can tell you though, is that it felt like pure love. Being at a school that was 99% where the kids looked like me, and the teachers valued black children, and so many of the teachers were also black. I felt so much love, yet I was seeing a difference in the quality of the type of education I was getting. The resources that were available to us weren't as balanced. And so there I was, you know, just again, really seeing and living through these differences that I didn't realize would become useful for me later in life as I was working on my passion and mission to make education more equitable. Yeah, I think that so much of our early experiences, even though at the time we don't probably know or see how that later on is going to be either a transformative moment or a moment of um, seeing things in a much different lens. And so what I think love about hearing your story is that you were able to experience both and clearly see that there's a disparity um, and there's a gap. And so moving into education and deciding to, you know, work as a teacher and then move up into administration, um, how intentional have you been in, in those roles and what have been your drivers for doing that work? Oh my gosh. My, my biggest Um, when I think of driver, I think first of my motivation and my motivation truly has been the, the anger that I felt early on in my career in seeing the lack of love and love from a place of genuine care and concern to empower students simply because they exist simply on the human level. And I get angry when I see people shortchange kids. And I feel like education is the most sacred, sacred work there is to be working with the future of humanity. And when we sell kids short, we literally cut them off at the pass. We cut them off from themselves. We cut them off from their greatness and accessing their hopes and dreams. And I really, it makes me furious. And I've had to learn to channel that anger into resolve of wanting to be part of a solution that contributes to what I know to be true at the core of who we are as people. And that is that at the core as people, we do love each other. We have the ability to truly serve from our beingness of love. And so the drivers that I really leverage are empathy, our emotional intelligence, um, anchoring into the difficult conversations around talking about the things that block us. Because once we can name it and own it, we can actually deal with it. But we can't do it if we're not going to even acknowledge it. And that's why I think we're in the situation we've been in for so long is because we've been in a system of whiteness that they don't want to acknowledge whiteness. And I say that um, in a direct way, but a very matter of fact way. Like it's not even... um, like this generation's of white people's fault. (laughs) Like they're literally just living into the privilege that they've always known. And so the discomfort that has to come through healing that takes a great deal of emotional intelligence. It takes spiritual growth because it's truly anchoring into um, our own transformational process of being in difficult emotions and transforming into something better. How are we going to be better servant leaders? How are we going to serve kids so that they can be successful? Because it's interesting that the very people that are creating the systems in whiteness, which are generally white people, don't even care necessarily about the outcomes because they're creating a system of success where they don't even believe in the kids being successful if that makes sense. So you can't create a system of success if you don't believe that the people in it can be successful. 
So we're going to break down terms because I never know who knows what. And I don't ever assume that, you know, when someone hears a term like whiteness um, and they're like, whiteness, what is that? Um, What does whiteness mean? So when I say whiteness, I think I use that really in place of white dominant culture. And white dominant culture is really the culture and society we have been raised in if we've been raised in the United States. Um, Culture is taught. Culture is passed down as a set of values, as a set of belief systems, as a way of doing things. And so when we think about um, some of the things that we've been acculturated to in terms of white dominant culture, we think about the time, structure of time the structure of authority and levels of authority, uh, the structure of ways we're taught to connect. Like I think about things like even, you know, people, when we started going on Zoom to a more virtual environment, all of a sudden people were like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm eating on Zoom. And I, I kept thinking, well, who says you can't eat on Zoom? At what point did someone make that rule? <laughs> and how did it become this, this culture of, oh, I can't eat on Zoom all of a sudden? Um, and just, you know, things get passed down and, and just become so, and we rarely question how that is. And so when I think about whiteness, I use that term in terms of white dominant culture. Uh, when I think about resilience, I think about um, simply how are we overcoming obstacles? That's what resilience is. It's a fancy word for how are you overcoming obstacles? And it's research based in how we can do that when we anchor to emotional intelligence. And lastly, emotional intelligence is really um, looking at a set of skills around self-awareness, self-management or um, self-regulation, how we engage with others, our social awareness, our stress management. I like to think though, at a more skillful level of emotional intelligence, I think about emotional capacity, our skillfulness and our agility. How are we agile in our emotions and skillful with them? And all this can be learned. That's what's so magical. It can all be learned. So I know you've been doing these racial healing and allyship workshops, at least for the past, gosh, three, four months, maybe. Um, Can you describe what this work is um, and how you are bringing all of these concepts, these um, experiences in the in the context of how you educate, educate people or, you know, bring awareness. Um, how are you bringing that to this work? Um, that's a great question. Um, the funny thing is, is like, you know, I'm not new to this, which I think is important that people um, understand when they go to see uh, diversity trainers, equity trainers, leaders in equity and inclusion. It can't be someone who's made a pivot. It can't be someone who's, um, you know, really new to this work because it's about integration. And I've been at this for 25 years and it's still uncomfortable, Garland. Like I want people to understand the discomfort that still comes with even leading this work because of its emotional root. And so it's about integration. And in this racial healing work and even being allies, it's around self-mastery. How are you able to have self-mastery of your own emotions? How are you able to engage in your own transformation and trusting how messy it is, how unpredictable it is, and trusting the process? Because also the process is the process. So you can either trust it or not trust it. When you don't trust it, it adds a whole other level and layer of resistance that's not helpful in your healing and transformation. And so what I started seeing was the amount of um, difficult emotions that were arising from race-based conversations. And I didn't know this early in my career. When I started having race-based conversations, you know, we were approaching it intellectually. But the more that I started having my own mindfulness practice that I've had for over 25 years where I've meditated daily every day, I started seeing, oh, this is rooted in the emotions of things. There's pain here. There's hurt here. There's shame here. There's unforgiveness here. Like there are all these things that we talk about outside of our professional lives. And so my 
approach and work is to integrate these things that we look at as personal growth and development and knowing, nah, nah, this is really professional growth and development and that it's integration. There is no separation. Who we are is how we lead. That's a quote from Brene Brown. And the bottom line is that your personal transformation is your professional transformation. And healed leaders heal organizations and schools. Healed leaders heal systems. Heal leaders heal organizations and systems. Heal leaders heal schools. Got it. So I've heard you say our being impacts our doing. Um, and so when you say that, we're, you know, there's no showing up one way at work and showing up one way at home and showing one way up at church, like who you are everywhere you go is who you are. And that informs what you're doing. So when you're doing this work with people who maybe have compartmentalized themselves, right? Um, how do you get them to see the integration of this wholeness? in terms of their ability to say, oh, wow, I, I didn't make that connection, right? I didn't make that connection that what I'm doing over here is also what I'm doing over here. <laughs> Initially, I have to start with the intellectual aspect of that, where it's literally asking them to think about ways they might communicate with those that they live with or those in their personal life if they don't live with someone. And then I ask them to think about how do they communicate with people at work? Where do they start to see almost like a Venn diagram? Where do they see the commonalities of the phrases that they're using, the tone that they're using, um, where they're avoiding difficult conversations in one place and not the other or in both places. And so we start off very basic with seeing Oh, something as simple as communication and how that's integrated and showing up in, in both arenas, if you will, the arena of home and the arena of work. And, um, and so they start to see it there kind of first on paper. And when you, the light bulb starts to go off for, oh, I am seeing how I'm the same person. I'm just putting on more of a mask or I'm removing this boundary or I'm letting my hair down in these different ways. And that is blocking the beingness because you're not being your authentic self. You're not showing up from a place of wholeness. Anytime we go into any space where we don't feel like our whole full selves, we're not operating from our beingness. We're not operating with all of who we bring. And all of who we bring is our superpower. All of who we bring is what gets the results and outcomes. If I had totally disregarded the experiences that I had as a black girl in school or the black girl at UC Berkeley in the room of 300 that had never read Shakespeare and what that did to me in that moment and my own self-esteem as a scholar to look around at 300 white kids like me who made it to UC Berkeley but had actually read Shakespeare. That's what made me teach Shakespeare. So we have to bring all of those experiences and bring that fullness and not discount it. And those are stories that I tell to humanize and normalize what could also be considered shameful. I could have a lot of shame about getting to Cal and not having read Shakespeare. In fact, I did feel shame, but I wasn't going to let that make me hide. I wasn't going to make that make me overachieve and do what I wasn't naturally set to do. And so, um, you know, it's complex. It is complex, but we take it out in chunks. And um, I like to think that I've been doing this long enough where the chunks make sense. And that's why my programs are also not really one-off types of programs because transformation is not just a two-hour thing and then a one and done and you're, you know, it's over. Transformation takes time. Yeah. So... I'm going to get so spiritual with you because I think this is your gift. I, I, I know it's your gift. Um, when it comes to people, because you, what you said is, you know, that's your superpower. That's your thing that you're here to do. Um, it's kind of your soul's 
purpose, right? Your soul's recognition of why you are showing up in the world is to do something. And so when you are blocked or are blocking um, that recognition and as a result, blocking how you show up so that you can be your full authentic self, let's go there. Because this is, these are the conversations I love. Um, because I think that, and this has nothing to do with religion, folks. This has nothing to do with, you know, what you, where you come from, or how you were, you know, what religious practices, where you decide to worship. This is your soul, who you are before you were anybody else. <laughs> um so let's talk about the soul work and how that is a huge part of the trans- transformation process um, as well. Love it. Absolutely love it. Um, when we get down to the soul work of transformation, it's around um, unpacking our schemas. It's, it's about looking at uh, childhood <laughs> belief systems, what we call our conditioning how has our conditioning impacted how we have shaped ourselves into the adult that we choose to present to the world? And I like even going back to what were the things that you enjoyed doing as a child? Those are those um, secrets and those gifts and those, those light bulb moments that started showing you where your gifts lie, um, where you can take action in a way that feels clear for you by anchoring to those things. I used to love to daydream. I didn't realize that daydreaming is so closely linked to meditation and how much I love meditation. Um, In the work of meditation, which is linked to the work of our soul, you are your own best teacher. All of my work is rooted in the empowerment model that I require you to meditate for five minutes a day, just five minutes, because you are your own best teacher. Your soul has the remembrances of the learnings and the teachings that you're cognizant of and the ones that you've buried. And when those things that have started that were buried start to reveal themselves, that's where you start to work with. That's where you're getting a glimpse of what needs to be healed. And so I like to bring in what I call emotional rigor, the emotional rigor of awareing, awareness of what is arising right nowing. So how can we work on this dual awareness of almost seeing yourself in the moment, but also seeing yourself before and past the moment? So you're seeing yourself in a duality of almost like your spiritual self and how you're showing up. Um, I'm trying to summarize it. And, and keep it uh, as simple as I can. But we have this sense of awareness where we're seeing our conditioning show up in the moment. That's what people act on is generally that conditioning. And that's not the skillful response. That's not the response of your highest and best self. And so we take what we call the sacred pause. We take that moment to stop. But you have to learn by sitting with yourself and being uncomfortable you have to learn how to interrupt yourself before you do it. So um, you're almost like, again, in that dual awareness, staying a step ahead of your own action, a step ahead of your own thought. But you can only learn that garland by being, by practicing being present enough to yourself to be on to yourself, to interrupt yourself, <laughs> to then show up. That part. So What I know when I'm really good on my meditation practice is that it gives me a sense of stillness. Like it's a place that I already have with like, it's always there. Like I don't have to meditate to go there. It's just there. And so when you have that sense of stillness that's there, you can see things totally in another way because you're not coming from a place of, reaction or feeling like you need to, um, you know, understand and get in front of and, you know, be on or whatever that is, you really being present in the moment, listening, very intentionally listening. 
Like it's another kind of listening. Um, and as a result, you can see, almost you can see the energy in the room, which sounds probably even more woo-woo, but you understand, right? You can see dynamics in the room that you're like, hmm, okay. So how these folks are interacting over here, and this person is considered the alpha in the room, and as a result, this is how other people are showing up in response to this person. So you can see it very clearly when you are being intentional with your practice and you are present enough to not, you're present enough to just be, to just be there. Exactly, exactly. And you hit the nail on the head with, you have to practice it. You have to practice it enough, which is why you have the five minutes at minimum per day, because you have to be in it to be able to stay in it. <laughs> and you have to practice being in it so that it, um, you're comfortable being in it. And it doesn't, one, catch you by surprise. But the other is, if you don't practice being in it, you won't even be aware of it in a way that is skillful. That's the thing, in a way that's skillful. And everyone, yes, like you named, can access it. And we get more comfortable with it. The way you're even fluent in the way you're describing it is because you've been accessing it and you've been practicing it and you've been experiencing it. And that's what happens when we work on our beingness and when we serve from this place. It's like it doesn't go away because you it continue doesn't. to nurture it. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. I feel the hair standing up on my neck. Um, <laughs> so... When people are new to meditation and new to this whole idea of, you know, having a daily practice or even making time, you know, how do you help them to understand what this, like you said, everyone can access it. How can you help them to understand why this is so critical to their own transformation? It's critical to their own transformation in that, again, they have their own answers. They have to access to their own answers. I consider myself a master teacher and facilitator because I simply have created experiences that allow people to tap in in a way that allows them to empower themselves. And that's what it's about. And that's why it's important that we start young with this work because it's all within. And if you, if you teach from an empowerment model, then people don't always keep needing you. And that's important. You don't want people to keep needing you because there's always going to be plenty more people who will need you. The point is to get people to be completely self-sufficient and embodied in making their own dreams come true and in supporting themselves and being able to support others who they lead to do the same. And what's critical in the link of what we're discussing around this beingness and this awareness in terms of racial healing is that you need to be able to interrupt your biases before you act on them. And newsflash, folks, for all of our listeners, your biases will never go away. They're never going to go away. They're so ingrained and so conditioned into us that all you can do is be aware of them and interrupt them. That's the best you're ever going to be able to do with them because you're never going to not, you're going to know it to not be true on an intellectual level, but you're never going to kind of not believe it. That's the only way I can say because that's the conditioning of a bias is so, so strong. And that's why this awareness piece and the meditation piece is so critical. If you want to be um, more inclusive and anti-racist and create, spaces of belonging is that you have to be on to yourself enough and be able to interrupt yourself and anchor to the places of empathy where you really want to lead from. Garland, with all my heart, I believe that the 85%, this is a national number, the 85% of white teachers and leaders in our schools absolutely care about and love kids. And I 100% believe that they are acting on embodied beliefs of systemic whiteness 
that are doing a disservice to our educational system and the outcomes that we're getting. And that if we spent some intensive time healing ourselves and working on ourselves just enough that we would shift outcomes dramatically because we're creating situations where kids of color could be successful if we really believed that they could. But the sad part is that there are people teaching them that don't even believe it. And they're not checking themselves on that belief. Okay. So as a parent, hearing that statistic was kind of like, whoa. <laughs> what can parents do? What can, you know, because I'm, I'm the parent that is probably like your mom that like rolls up to the school the minute I see, hear, sniff anything that's not right. Um, they know me from day one the teachers and the administration. I've been doing this since she was in kindergarten, back to before kindergarten, preschool. Um, and so I understand advocacy in education and why it's important to have a strong parent advocate who is looking for the resources, who is helping them to understand your child before the school year starts um, because you know your child better than anybody else other than they knowing themselves. But I mean, in terms of you seeing their educational development and you understanding their, their areas that they're really great in and the areas that are just, this is not as strong, but we, we, we're gonna work on making sure they get the basics. As a parent, how do you advocate for your children or champion or be there in a system that sometimes isn't showing up the way it should? Fabulous, fabulous question. And so I have um, two responses for that. And um, let's see. The first is I have to get in a shameless plug for my book, Be a Parent Champion. <laughs> and so parents, you definitely want to order that book on Amazon because it's um, a bit of a, of a beingness roadmap for parenting your child through school. Um, I call it educational parenting because there's a there's a way to to focus and navigate the education system and support your child, particularly your child of color through a system that was des not designed to see them be successful. So you're going to have to advocate differently. You already know this. If you're a parent of color, you already know this. This is just a book to support you with some tools. So that's, there's that piece there um, in terms of you're going to just have to do more as a parent of color and stay in touch with the school, make sure that they know you. What I recommend also is that you always let your children's teachers know, even through high school, giving them a short letter of bullet points. This is how my child learns best. And this is what I expect from my child, both academically and behaviorally, because our Teachers generally have stereotypical expectations, particularly of our black boys, that, you know, if it's your norm in your household that your student is getting A's and B's, your teachers, your child's teachers need to know this because a lot of times the teachers will allow them to get C's and D's because the expectation just isn't the same. And so the teacher needs to know that you're monitoring this and that we're on the same page and that if your child's grade drops below a certain point that you want to be contacted, you have to be that explicit about what your expectations are from that teacher who's educating your child. The other thing that you can do, whether you're a parent of color, but particularly if you're um, a white parent, is do your work around racial healing. You have to do your work because the only way we're going to shift the outcomes for humanity to be more inclusive and, and uh, have a sense of belonging is that we're having to provide opportunities that look different for our own white children. And this came so clear to me through racial healing allies and through speaking with white parents and even some of the coaching that I'm doing with some white parents around how can they not pass on their own habits of whiteness, pass on their own conditioning to their children. See, if you can interrupt negative aspects of cultures of systemic whiteness and not pass that on to white children, then the goal is that they don't grow up feeling so privileged or feeling so separate than or feeling um, 
so rooted in, in, in the concept of whiteness where they can interrupt it already because there's less to interrupt if that's making sense. And so the adults simply just have to start raising their children differently in terms of discussing blackness, discussing people of color, using different books, using different dolls, using different Barbies. Um, better yet, taking your children to black professionals. Is your dentist black? Is your um, psychiatrist black? Is your pediatrician black, excuse me, and I'll just add, or of color. Okay, how are we diversifying who our children are being exposed to? Because when white kids often have the experiences of their white parents of only being exposed to white people, then we're perpetuating more of the same. And so we just have to interrupt it intentionally and differently. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. That is a good one. Um, because I don't think people think about these things at all. They just, you know, oh, I want to go to the best doctor, the best dentist, the best orthodontist, whatever. Um, it's who I'm referred or, oh, my friend's kids go there too. Um, and so we just go yeah, along with it. Yeah, and the culture. Go <laughs> they go there it. too. Yeah. Sorry, right. I'll stop. <laughs> yeah. No, no, this is good. Um, and then when you look at. Um, Can I say one more thing? Oh, yes. I just want to add in that when we take recommendations of who our friends and everybody sees, if it's in the same cultural group, again, that's how it's perpetuated. But I also want to name that when we think about who the best orthodontist is, who the best dentist is, who the best doctor is, and if we equate best with white, that's our conditioning. And if I have made anyone tinge a bit when I said to white parents, to choose a black doctor, choose a black dentist, and you paused. If anything inside y'all, if you're listening and anything inside you paused on that in not a good way, that's your conditioning. And that's a racist belief of some sort in there. And I want to name that I want to normalize that. Do not bring shame with that. That's simply your own white fragility and that's simply your conditioning and you can interrupt it. If you truly believe and value people of color, then you will break the pattern and interrupt it. This is really good. Um, so I'm, I feel like I, we could keep going, but I'm going to stop <laughs> because I know we've got, we've got to keep time on certain things, but um, let's talk about your, you know, other offerings, the things that you've got coming up. Um, I mean, of course, I think you discussed your book. Uh, do you have any other things you'd like to have the listeners know about in terms of what you offer? I think we focused on education. However, I know you do a whole host of things with other organizations outside of education. Um, you're a certified Dare to Lead facilitator and coach. And so um, that is huge. All the Brene Brown fans out there. I know there's a bunch of people that love her. Um, and so can you talk about that? Absolutely. Um, Brene is brilliant. And I was personally trained by her in uh, March of, gosh, it seems like, yeah, March 2019, her first cohort of Dare to Lead trainers. And that was such an honor um, being Privy to get her teachings personally from her in a way where I can carry them out in the world was powerful. And all of this that I'm really discussing is rooted in courageous leadership as well. Like it takes courage for us to lead for racial healing. It takes courage for us to anchor into our emotional intelligence. And so it has been a valuable addition to my toolkit. And I integrate that work into all of the other areas for folks that really love dare to lead and want to focus on that set of principles and curriculum, which I love doing. Um, there's going to be a summer intensive. I'm still setting those dates, but we're doing a summer intensive training. If you sign up on my mailing list, then you'll get notified of when that happens. Um, I, I love my vision workshop. I do my vision workshop maybe twice a year. That's happening January 28th. And so we are currently, you know, registering for that. And that allows us to anchor into the inner blueprint of the vision behind our goals. 
It's like, yeah, you have your goals and we can keep trying to do our goals, but how do we be the goal? What is in us that supports the beingness of achieving that goal? And then, of course, racial healing allies. We have our fourth cohort coming up and we're registering for that now. That starts February 9th. So, um, you know, the rest of this month will be open in this January. And then we have a special, special group called Embodied Allyship. That group is a high level, emotionally rigorous, deeply committed to the work group. That's an 11 week program. It is not the four week primer. That is starting March 16th. And if you've been doing your race work for quite some time, but you haven't been doing it from a place of emotional intelligence and beingness and mindfulness, then this might be just the tweak that you need to um, to go deeper with yourself in this racial healing work. And so, um, again, that's March 16th, and that'll be on the website really soon. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm excited because um, I think last year's unfortunate events, um, but not new events, have sparked an huge reawakening with people to get on their work, Uh, whether they had started it and kind of fell off, whether they hadn't started it ever, um, or just wanting to be not watching and doing something, not just saying, oh, that's unfortunate thoughts and prayers, but actually, what am I doing? How can I be involved? What is it that I am What is my part in this, basically? Um, So what I love about just you, your workshops, like what you're doing is is answering that call. It's answering that need. Um, Do not call your Black colleagues and coworkers. Do not call your Black neighbor or your whoever. Like, it's your turn to take up the mantle for yourself and do the work. Um, and so there are resources, there are organizations, there are people who do this every day before all of this, they were doing this. Um, and so find, find the Tovies out there because I think it is important for you to, um, the same way, you know, you decide, oh, I want to learn how to fly fish and you buy all the gear and you get all the things and you book the, the you know, trip to Montana. This is no different. (laughs) (laughs) I want to get racially healed. What do I need to do? I need to find a teacher. I need to buy the book. I need to do the workbook. I need to get in the class. Same thing. Same thing. So um, thank you for your time. I've got two things I do right before I wrap up. One is uh, fill in the blank and the other is a question. So Inclusion and equity drives my work. So that our kids will grow up in an entirely new world where nothing stops them because they're just surrounded with absolute love at all times. What does life look like coming full circle to you? I know that I'm coming full circle because I'm fully at a place where I am designing a life that I absolutely love living. That is great. That is what it's about. Um, So I am going to put all of Toby's information in the show notes. Um, She's got a website for you to sign up to all of these things. If you are interested in getting on her mailing list, you can do that there as well. So you can be kept up to date on all of the, you know, upcoming workshops and, um, you know, trainings and things that she's got going on. I think that what you're doing is honestly, I'm going to say the Lord's work because that's really what it is. I mean, we're not whoever, whoever you Buddha's work, Krishna's work, Allah's work. It's the work of it's, it's a deep work. Um, And so I appreciate you. I appreciate you for, Um, realizing this is necessary work and stepping into it, even though it's uncomfortable, even though at times it's like, what, what are we doing? How did we get here? Um, And so continuing to show up is 
everything. So I appreciate you for that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Garland. It has been such an honor and a pleasure to be invited to be on Full Circle with Garland. And I could not have thought of a better way to spend my day. What a great conversation with Tovi. I learned so much about what she said um, around this concept of beingness. And I know it sounds so um, amorphous, kind of even like not really defined. And I don't think you can define beingness because it is who you are to your core and what that means to you as an individual is different. But the things that I think stood out for me, I'd say that the two things, actually the three things, because I I have to speak as a parent on this um, because education was a big component of what she talked about. But um, The first part was, where do we start to see the Venn diagrams of our personal and professional selves? What are those masks and boundaries that are blocking us from being our whole selves? Um, How do we operate when we are fully in our selves, being who we want to be, when we don't have to put on masks, when we don't have to pretend? And when you really get to do that, not just in your personal life, but also at work, you show up in a more, you know, just, I'd say, whole way, um, your superpowers, as they call it, meaning things that you bring to the work, that you bring to this life, your soul's purpose, all of that stuff is so much greater. Um, it's huge when you don't have to spend a certain percentage of your mind thinking about whiteness. Uh, and I, I will call it out like she did, because I believe when we are in some of these corporate spaces, specifically ones that are primarily um, the white dominant culture is a big part of it, you spend a lot of your psychological time thinking about what other people are thinking about you. And I don't sometimes think, you know, white people maybe, maybe know that, but I think all people of color, all marginalized people, women, LGBTQ, anyone who's had to cover, mask, or create some kind of persona in order to fit into white spaces. Um, There is a psychological um, burden, honestly, that you're always thinking about how are other people perceiving me instead of being able to fully show up and, you know, give your 100% work. Um, And so, so much of this is how we are showing up and compartmentalizing ourselves Um, and what that means in terms of the detriment it can sometimes take. Um, And then in sometimes some cases for folks who are like, I I am not doing this. I'm just going to show up as who I am. If you don't like it, then I will, you know, essentially go off and do whatever I need to do. Um, I think we're going to have a guest on a little bit later who is unapologetically like that, uh, Madison. And I think when you hear her, she might be a lot for some of your senses, but I think what she's saying and doing is right on um, because we're trying to all get that free. I, I personally think we're all trying to have people be able to show up in the way that they need to in order for them to really bring everything. And when you bring everything, I think all of our, everything changes, but we need to be creating those kinds of workplaces. We need to be creating those kinds of um, organizations, systems, Uh, in order for that to happen. The second thing she said was um, the dual awareness to be able to see your conditioning and then taking a sacred pause to interrupt yourself. Staying a step ahead is hard to do, but you can do it in a skillful way. Um, It's being able to unpack our schemas and our conditioning in order to interrupt the bias, interrupt some of the things that are happening. So I think this part for me was very impactful because a big part of our conditioning is realizing that's what it is. Um, I think as a woman, uh, I can see the conditioning of us being seen as the nurturers, as the ones who are going to take on more um, in the work, you know, when it comes to work at home and whether that's caregiving, whether that's, you know, domestic duties, things like that. And so the idea that as a woman, you have a choice in saying, you know what, I'm not going to take all of this on. I want to share this with the household or I want to outsource this. Um, I think in certain cultures, you know, this is normalized and in others, we have a very hard time deciding to, you know, 
share this or outsource it. Um, and so when I think about unpacking our schemas and our conditioning, it touches so many things. Uh, and what she was saying is when you can get still and quiet enough on a regular enough basis through a daily practice that you can start to see the schemas, you can start to see the conditioning, you're able to then stop and then interrupt yourself to be able to make a different choice or to see something through a different lens. Uh, and so I, I can't help but think how much we can learn from being more quiet and still mindful in our, in our lives daily, um, because it, it's a huge part of helping us uh, create more personal transformation. Um, and as a result of that personal transformation, it's how we go out into the world um, to be greater. The third thing she was talking about was um, advocacy, um, advocacy in you know schools. Uh, this was, I say, for me, huge because I feel like I've been doing this um, since my daughter was born, and I think it's because of my own education and how I have had to kind of you know learn about what was available to me. And the only way you can know that is if you've got someone who has been through a system and understands how the system works to be able to see where there are disparities. Um, and I think parent advocacy, um, not just start, you know, not only in the schools, but I think when you look at our workplaces, it's advocating for ourselves in our workplaces. Um, and it's hard to do, I think, in workplaces because um it means you're challenging a lot of the status quo that's happening in work. And oftentimes it means, you know, again, whiteness and white dominant culture is maybe pushing back against you and telling you, you know, what you're saying is not real, what you're saying isn't true. Um, but I think finding the advocates around you, the ambassadors, the champions, the people who are going to go um, to bat for you, whether they're sometimes working inside the organization or outside of the organization, oftentimes, um, I think is key to you being able to um, manage manage it while you are in these spaces where it's not easy to be your full self. Uh, there was so much she shared in this episode. Uh, and I think that when you look at the fullness of what she said, uh, it really is about healing yourself so that you can be better human being in the world. I mean, at the end of the day, that's, this is what it is. Whether you apply it to, you know, the education uh, sector, you apply it to corporate and business sectors, whether you apply it to um, your personal life and your relationships, I think it's all one in the same, but recognizing that there is a need for healing and that it's on you to do, and it's also that you have the answers were huge. So uh, I just want to thank Toby because this was such a good episode and hopefully there was some uh, information shared today that made you just pause, reflect, think about things a little bit more. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend. You can find me on Instagram at Full Circle with Garland. And if you'd like to be a guest, go to garlandfuller.com. Thank you for listening and sharing your time with me. I hope this next week helps you to recognize the full circles in your own life. Bye-bye.